Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast. I'm Anastasia Yaglova, your host. In today's podcast, we'll talk to Cato Senior Fellow Jerry Taylor about his take on the stern review on the economics of climate change, a report that was released some weeks ago. What does the stern review on the economics of climate change say about global warming? Well, the Stern Review was released in early November, and what it argues is that if we leave greenhouse gas emissions unaddressed, a business-as-usual scenario would lead to anywhere between a 5 and a 10% reduction in global GDP every single year from about 50 years out through the rest of time. It also argues that that revenue of that income loss could actually exceed 20% of global GDP under certain circumstances as well. Now, what made this very interesting is that Stern argued that the losses from doing nothing are quite dramatic, but that we could head off most of those losses by spending about 1% of global GDP in greenhouse gas emissions controls. So he was essentially selling an insurance policy, spend 1% of GDP now to offset the possibility or almost the certainty of losing at least 5% of global GDP every year, 50 years hence, or maybe even up to 20. What's interesting is that it's not as if economists haven't looked at this sort of an issue in the past, and there's a mountain of academic research on it, and Stern's calculations are very high compared to those of, say, Bill Nordhaus at Yale or other economists who believe that a business-as-usual scenario, in other words, assume that we ignore Al Gore's warnings and we continue in a world in which we don't lift a finger to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that business-as-usual scenario, according to most economists who looked at it, would lead to a 5 to 20% reduction in global GDP every year. The reduction would only be somewhere between 0 and 3% of global GDP every year. So the Stern review was important because it upped the ante quite a bit. And that's why it made a lot of news. Now, you talked about this when the review first came out a few weeks ago in a blog post. What prompted you to revisit the issue today? Well, when the report came out, I first heard about it on a Sunday afternoon. I was watching the Redskins play football, and I got a call from Andy Revkin, who's a reporter at the New York Times, who I know, and he said, Stern Review is coming out on Monday. It's due to be released. Do you have any comments? And I said, well, Andy, it's not like I'm a member of the Stern Review. I have no idea what that report says. It hasn't been released. And he said, well, here's a website you can go to and see a pre-publication draft, and take a look at it, and I'll give you a call back in about 20 minutes. And so I had to do a quick read to see essentially what was in play here. And I provided some comments that, in retrospect, seemed reasonable enough, given how little time I had at the moment to look at the review. But what strikes me is that all of the top economists who spent time on this issue, and this is a very complicated issue, were reluctant to say much to the press initially, and for very good reason, because it's very hard to comment intelligently on a 700-plus page report off the top of your head. And so a lot of the big names in academia held their fire and had nothing much to say to reporters. The reason I decided to blog about it recently is that those academic heavyweights have now begun to weigh in. Now, the news cycle is gone. The Stern Review created quite a splash in Europe, less so in the United States, since we're not quite so besotted with global warming stories in the U.S. press as they are, say, in the European press. But the reviews by Bill Nordhaus at Yale and elsewhere have started to roll in now on the Stern Review, and they're quite devastating. What are some of the varying estimates on how much GDP will fall if we do nothing about global warming? Well, the estimate is that, according to Bill Nordhaus, if we do nothing about global warming, we might lose 3% of global GDP every year starting about 50 years out throughout time. Others, like Richard Tall, a pretty famous economist from Germany, argues that the GDP losses would only be about half a percent of GDP, about 50 years hence over time. And, of course, Stern says 5%, 10%, 20%. He's got a pretty big range, but they're all pretty jaw-dropping figures.
how much of GDP would be affected if we chose to do something about it? Well, Stern believes we can head off disaster if we spend 1% of global GDP every year to abate greenhouse gas emissions, but that's somewhat controversial. I think the actual cost of reducing greenhouse gas emissions would be well north of 1%. But that's anyway Stern's assumption. The interesting thing is if you were to do a cost-benefit analysis, assuming 1% of per capita expenditures in GDP to reduce greenhouse gas emissions today versus the benefits associated with reducing global GDP by 2, 5, or 10% in the future. You'll find that if you apply, say, a 5% discount rate, which is the standard convention of these things, Stern's policy proposal makes sense if you think the global warming will take out 10% of GDP every year, 50 years hence, and then every year thereafter. It really doesn't give you much if you think that global losses will only be about 5% of global GDP under a business-as-usual scenario. And if you think that business-as-usual reduces global GDP by 3% or 2%, then you find that doing something about global warming is far more costly than you would imagine, in fact, is extremely counterproductive. What's interesting is why is there such a discrepancy between what the Stern report says, which estimates losses at about 20% of GDP, and the consensus view, which estimates losses at 0 to 3%? Well, there are a lot of different issues in play, but the most important one is the discount rate being used by the different, different analysts. If you look at the press reports, you would think that the Stern review came out with higher numbers because it's got a more precise model. There's new scientific facts and data that are now available to researchers. Stern says as much in his executive summary that it's these new and more adroit computer models and this new data regarding warming that explain the higher numbers. But the reality is, if you look closely at this document, virtually all of the difference between, say, Bill Nordhaus, who thinks business as usual means a 3% loss of global GDP, 50 years hence, versus Stern, who thinks it might be 5, 10, or 20, is the fact that Bill Nordhaus uses a 3% discount rate, whereas Nicholas Stern uses a 0.1% discount rate. And for those who aren't in economics, by applying a discount rate, what we're essentially saying is that money tomorrow is less valuable than money today. When people put money in a bank, they demand that every year they get some money back. Why? Well, because the money will be less valuable tomorrow to them than it will be today. In other words, we have to discount future costs and future benefits because of the time value of time and human interest. And if we don't do that, we get some very weird things. For instance, if we accept a 0.1% discount rate, which is what Stern says we should accept, then what would happen if I told you that by the year 2200, there will be a wrinkle in the climate system that reduces global GDP by 0.01% every year from 2200 and thereafter? What would we do? What would make sense if we had to make a one-time expenditure to alleviate those future costs today? Well, if you accept a 0.01% discount rate, which is what Stern asked us to do, it would make sense for us to use 15% of the world's total output today to reduce that trivial amount of global damage in the year 2200 and thereafter. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because it ignores the fact that present generations are far poorer than future generations will be. And there aren't very many people who would endorse discount rates like that. But if you take the discount rate trickery out of the Stern review, you find that the numbers don't end up being very far at all from, say, where they were with Bill Nordhaus or other economists who have looked at this. So what kind of discount rate should we use? When I read your blog post, I was very surprised to find you invoke Rawls in your argument. 
it's very easy for people to say that we should treat future generations as carefully and with as much concern as we treat present generations, and it's always easy to evoke kids. You know, what kind of world do we want to leave our kids? We should sacrifice tremendously for our grandchildren, and that sort of thing. And the left likes to make these arguments about intergenerational equity, that tomorrow is worth worrying about as much as today, and if you disagree, then you're some sort of heartless child hater. The reality is, of course, is that the future generations will be far, far wealthier than present generations. And if you believe in equity, if you believe in maximizing the well-being of the poorest individuals in society, it stands to reason you would also be interested in maximizing the economic well-being of the poorest generations within your matrix. And the fact is, is that today's generation will be far, far poorer than tomorrow's generation, the generation after that, which is why Steve Landsberg, an economist at the University of Rochester, once famously wrote at Slate magazine, if you care about intergenerational equity, you ought to tax the knickers off your grandkids, confiscate their views of the wild places and cut down all their trees because they're going to be a lot richer than you are. And I think that actually makes a fairly good point. When you argue that, say, in a blog post, you'll get a lot of emails back saying what a heartless SOB you might be. But it turns out that if you believe in the sorts of arguments that John Rawls made in a theory of justice, it's very hard to argue against this proposition that we should be concerned about future generations less than we're concerned about present generations because present generations are the poor. The future generations are the rich. Why should the poor sacrifice for the rich if you care about, say, the arguments forwarded by Rawls? No reason that I can think of. Don't you think that following that logic through to its conclusion would mean that present generations should never do any kind of planning for the future because future generations will always have more resources at their disposal to deal with any issue? Well, future generations will have more resources at their disposal as long as we have a capitalist system of free markets and limited government because that's the sort of system that creates resources. I mean, resources are not like buried treasure we go out and find that Gaia planted there for our attention. Resources are created by human technology and man. Resources are simply inert stuff that we discovered a way to harness profitably for mankind. 200 years ago, oil was not a resource. If you found on your land, it drove down property values. But we found a way to use oil in a profitable manner, and it became a resource. Same with uranium. Uranium wasn't a resource, but we invent nuclear power and bingo. Uranium is a resource. Resources are manifestations of human technology and knowledge. And as long as we allow the advance of human technology and knowledge, then we're going to see an advance in resources. But imagine yourself in the world of 1900 trying to plan for the future. Imagine you're trying to plan for the world of the year 2000. What would you do to harness resources for the year 2000? Now, remember, in the year 1900, there was not air travel, much less space travel. Electricity was fairly much unknown. We didn't have nuclear power. We didn't have advanced medicines. We didn't have electronics. The world of 2000 would be utterly unrecognizable to someone in 1900. And if they were trying to worry about the resources available to future generations, what might they worry about? Salt? Whales? They would worry about hay? They would worry about things that are utterly irrelevant to us today. There's a certain amount of hubris involved that we can make projections about what sort of energy we'll be using in the year 2100. Who the heck knows what sort of energy we'll be using in the world of 2100? Yet Stern has to come up with some answer because he's drawing these complicated economic models to do cost-benefit analysis regarding greenhouse gas emissions, which I think are fairly hard to do with a straight face. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional, one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.